Hey, hey, welcome to RD NFT. That's research and data on NFTs. This is a weekly podcast focused on the latest research, news, and data on NFT marketplaces, technology, uh, the macro economy, you name it. If it affects NFTs, we're going to talk about it. I am Rob the Economist. You can find me at Rob the Economist on Twitter. And I'm joined by my two faithful co hosts. My name is Lucas. I'm the senior manager of analytics at RD. You can find me at the underscore NFT underscore analyst on Twitter. And I'm excited to chat all things data, research, and Web3. Hi, I'm Shazam Bomb on Twitter. I'm a senior backend developer slash Solidity developer for Artie. Let's dive in. Yeah, we we uh, we do actually have a lot to talk about. I mean, one of the things that's happened since we last spoke um, is that crypto markets are are pumping? Um, last time we talked, we talked about Bonk. So maybe Bonk was the precursor to a full market recovery. Um, but wait, whatever wait, wait. happened. One last thing. <laughs> quick update on feet picks: one thousand six hundred and seventeen ETH. So like, kudos to them, right? Pretty solid. That's insane. Yeah, I think when we talked is like less than a week ago, they were at like. 870 in I think ETH it was volume. Eight, it was it was eight something. I remember that. Yeah. So good on them. Man, good for them. Yeah. It's it's one of those things like that. It just this sequence of events. Again, like this is why I love like studying and researching crypto because essentially what we were talking about last time was like the idea of like the memification of things being like a, a something that's a value, right? Like just just the idea of it being part of it that's like it fits the space so well. But what also fits the space, especially now, is like you can see, for example, like one of the things that we've seen is Bitcoin has surged. We'll talk about a, a, a couple of potential reasons for that. Um, but one of the potential or one of the things that happened or that that seemed to have triggered this is that um, inflation seems to be easing a bit. Um, and so before we got the news that inflation was easing a bit, that's when Bitcoin was pumping. So this was ahead of this this CPI news people were anticipating. The news came in better than expected and Bitcoin dropped a bit. So, I mean, it says it says something to me that the news, it's not a big drop. It was 4% after a pretty significant rise. It's at the time, at least, was still above 20,000. Um, but it's really interesting to see that when you get this good news, people turn away from Bitcoin. I think this is part of like what we've started to see is like an emerging um, kind of consistent pattern, at least like the way that people are are switching between different investments. So this to me says that like when risk is on for some reason, or when risk is more on, that people are actually more bullish on Bitcoin. And now if things seem to be easing or there's less pressure on the Fed, that people are going to pull away from Bitcoin. So it's it, this is something people have been talking about for a long time is the idea of Bitcoin as a hedge, or in this case, I mean, we can say crypto as a hedge because everything was pumping at the same time. Well, I wonder yeah. if it, it was um, the market pricing in actually an even lower CPI, and then they got surprised by the fact that it's higher than they thought it was going to be. I'd be so, surprised because you do have you have inflation expectations; those are usually what's priced in. So that's why, like, typically you react to the the incorrection, right? If you hit it it's usually already priced in so if they came out perfectly you could be right though like i i'm not saying that like i i could see like this is exactly what happened you could be right that like for some reason in the crypto space they had a different expectation right the data has been trending downward so maybe even though consensus was higher 
absolutely it could be that whoever is holding crypto thought oh shit that's not as good as i had hoped um yeah totally could be that that's actually a pretty fair thought just because i do think web3 in general like crypto holders tend to be more pessimistic on like centralized currency and so like even if market expectation was like better or worse I bet that Web3's market expectation of like fiat is always slightly worse than whatever like the Fed sets expectation at, you know? <laughs> That's an interesting take too, because I th- I mean, honestly, I'll be totally, totally fair. Like I like these all these thoughts because this is again why I like researching crypto because it is different, right? And we've seen over the last like, let's say the second half of the year last year that there was this like aligning of crypto markets and traditional markets where they seem to move really in parity, whereas for years, that was the entire selling point or one of the biggest selling points of like Bitcoin is it's it's doesn't pair with anything in a traditional market. Um, even cryptos themselves for a long time didn't really move that much together. Um, I, I mean, they kind of followed Bitcoin, but other than that, they didn't really do anything. So if there is like some difference, like maybe this is revealing something to us, right? The fact that the reaction is, and that's what I find interesting is like, usually this is should be somewhat good news about the market overall. It's not great. It's not like, oh, no recession. It's more like, oh, this is slightly positive, right? Just slightly positive. Um, We still don't know what the Fed's going to do. But just the fact that there is this slightly like negative reaction, it has to be either their, their expectations were different, which then would suggest that like the way that you want to set your expectations for this market in particular are different. Um, Or it's something else that we're, we're not seeing, right? Like maybe there's, there's a pair of data. And so there's something else happening. Um, and we'll talk in a bit. Maybe there's maybe Tucker Carlson knows why this is happening anyway. And this is all a moot point, but we'll we'll get to that. To well, that there was that there was that um crypto exchange that was sanctioned by the United States government the other day. It was a Russian one, one that no one's ever heard of. I forget yep. what, what it was it called. With a B. Yeah. But Else. maybe that that was why some things dipped. That's possible, you know. And well, there is that's true because you got to remember that this is you know cryptos are a global, truly global asset that trade twenty four hours a day, right? So news in other parts of the world can be fairly significant um, in moving them. And I do think that still Bitcoin is what people follow. So if Bitcoin's moving, ETH is going to move. You know, they're they're going to all react the same way. So that's a fair point. I in, in, if anything, to me, it just is another kind of question mark of like oh does is this something new or is this like just slightly off is it it was different news that was just overwhelming like all these things um i think it's really worth following because we have a pretty good idea in traditional finance like if x is announced market does y right and like timing wise all the stuff we know like how long the effect lasts like there's some surprise news it'll last x number of days and then it doesn't matter anymore and cryptos is totally unknown uh, but we do know that it's you know heavily retail um, led. It's global, um, and that there there is differences. We've seen it you know countless times. Um, I think it's interesting how some of that like traditional knowledge though is like starting to be less accurate, right? Like some of the expectations, some of the assumptions that were like 
predicated on like just general economics as retail has gotten more and more into it. It just makes less sense. Like AMC, GameStop, things like that. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you're, you just can't like, you can't always say like, well, this is how it works. Cause like it might not, you know, it's just an interesting thing that I think we're seeing. Like, you know, that was obvious in cryptos, but now it's even like some of traditional, like ticker symbols just don't respond to financials or like news the way that like historically you could always pretty well assume was going to happen yeah totally yeah, agree and it, oh, seems sorry, like, it seems like branding is much more important these days because like if you have a solid brand that and marketing then retail can get behind that that's really what retail responds to right gamestop has a great brand yeah. you know like there are people who love games. I remember going to GameStop as a kid and like picking up games and like, you know, it actually is a company that means something to me. Right. I bring my kids there now. They love it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like they, they have so much cool stuff for, you know, gamers and, and the gaming industry has, you know, exploded. So I think brand really is what drives a lot of retail. And I think that, that's starting to become known, but it's still not fully known by like traditional players. I think that's totally fair. Honestly, like every time I drive by GameStop, I have like a real nostalgic feeling that makes me think to myself, like, I hope that one keeps going, you know? And like, I think that's what you see some of the retail do is, is like, it's like, you know, I love this. So it's, as to a certain point, it becomes like betting, right? Like it's not, some of the retail isn't necessarily investing. It's almost like, you know, I really hope this continues. Yeah, and and especially I think GameStop is the perfect example for so many reasons, but that like personal connection that people have because you could see like even before the uh, like the the whole everything went public and and there was that short squeeze and everything before that happened like you could see on Reddit like people genuinely buying stock not because like they thought it was going to grow but exactly what you said which is like I hope I sure hope it does right. I want to put my money into it because I believe in the company. And then I hope that is something that then therefore helps them grow in some way. It's yeah, it's a totally different approach. It's this weird, like activist investor, but on like the smallest little scale, right? Like yeah, yeah, choosing. Yeah. It's like single stocks get this huge activist. Like AMC is <laughs> a great example. Like movies yep. are struggling, but everybody's like, no, nah, the theater is not going away on my watch. <laughs> not on my Funny, watch. Because it's on the small scale for the individual, but collectively they can move it. Yeah in like huge directions yeah. so it's like it's like the reddit hive mind if you've ever if you've ever experienced that you know it's it's wild it's cool it's, and scary <laughs> very very scary i mean to the point where like when the uh gamestop thing happened one of the i was working in a bank at the time and one of the things that we were doing is just talking about like well, does this mean anything, right? Do we think retail is going to be that much more important? And it was really hard to answer because in the US, retail has played such a small part of actual like day-to-day, month-to-month, quarter-quarter stock movements that you don't really have to think about them. Like we really never did. And I was identifying investment strategies for large institutions. And we would basically lay out the whole market for them, but the ind- like the the retail influence and effect was never really brought in. The only time we would talk about it is if we were talking about Chinese markets because they have a much larger retail um, presence. So it's a huge part of their stock market is retail investing. Um, and so when this happened, we actually had to turn to research on Chinese stock markets and some other little things to see like what to expect. And it's not a perfect corollary, 
but it was pretty tricky just to be like, okay, what do we think is going to happen? How big is retail going to get? And I think the Reddit hive mind idea is what really kind of caught my attention. The idea that like before any individual's personal preference, their day trading, whatever, you know, you could ignore it because people as individuals would essentially diversify themselves away. Like they don't really matter. There's not enough of them. They don't move in the same direction. They don't talk to each other. You get the a, the right place where everybody suddenly decides to congregate, make decisions and actually follow those decisions. And then the next question is like, will people stick to it, right? Like, so in that case, everybody's like, hold, hold, hold. The first person to capitulate wins right like you you push the stock up as soon as you're the one who's going to capitulate you make a ton of money there's a large incentive to cheat on that tacit agreement and it didn't happen and that's the thing that blew my mind was like because it wasn't financially driven it was very much like middle finger to every hedge fund out there plus i love gamestop so i'll be damned if i'm gonna be the one to break right it's fascinating it's it's the diamond hands meme man wall street's really is is just a fascinating place it uh, insane before gamestop it was it was fascinating too like uh, arguably more interesting before GameStop. i think so um but man reddit is a wild place <laughs> yeah i saw a meme i saw a meme the other day that was like reddit degens the largest fund you've never heard of and it's like <laughs> that's kind of true that's a and great it's like kind of terrifying because i've literally watched people on reddit like post financial updates and it's like i've lost four hundred thousand dollars hold and it's like oh. that's that's crazy that's like psycho actually <laughs> yeah that's the part that's insane so wall street bets that if you make a claim you have to post proof yep otherwise they, they ban you so, well, that's like the you, stuff I'm talking about. And you know, like yeah. they lost 400,000 of like their profits, but exactly that's yeah. a lot of money for an individual retail person to be like, I was up 400K, but I've committed to <laughs> this like middle finger to that VC firm. Let's wait. <laughs> Let's wait. Hold on. Hold on. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And that, that was what I was going to say too. It's like, that's what it's turned into now is, is over the last however many months, just people posting their losses, which is also one of those things where it's like, endlessly entertaining and depressing at the same same time how real they are i don't know yeah exactly most of it's probably just wiped away gains but all right let's talk about um i I do want to talk about this bitcoin pump a bit more um but mostly because i find this idea really interesting um and so i want to i want to hear both of your reactions to this so tucker carlson fox news host um has a theory as to why Bitcoin has been pumping recently. His theory is that um, the recent uh, grounding of flights in the US, which happened, I think, last week, uh, January 11th. So all departures were halted. First time this has happened since 9-11. They said it was a software glitch. Um, apparently the next day, the same thing happened in Canada. And then also 10 days before that, it happened in the Philippines. Same thing, all flights grounded, software glitch. So Tucker Carlson is is hypothesizing that what actually happened was there was a ransomware attack of some kind um, and the U.S. government had to pay a large sum in Bitcoin, which then caused the price to pump because they had to go purchase a massive amount of Bitcoin to get their their software back to get flights off the ground. And then Canada did the same thing. So then it pumped. So that's that's his theory is that the U these government people have figured out how to take over aviation software and now they have they've been grounding flights because of it and they're gonna have to keep paying these ransoms so um thoughts yeah (laughs) yeah um you know 
I think the ransomware theory is probably not outlandish. That sounds probably like something that would happen to an airline. Um, it's an easy target. Uh, airlines are not really known for their security and top notch. Uh, well, they are known for physical physical security, but not digital security. Um, so I think it's reasonable to if you hit all the major players at once, you can do some damage. Um, and if you get into one system, it's probably easy to get into others. So I think the ransomware theory is probably sound in terms of like it affecting the Bitcoin markets. I kind of doubt it. The U S government is one of the largest holders of Bitcoin in the world. Uh, they already have a lot. And I bet that they have the CIA already like, Hey, follow this Bitcoin wherever it goes. We're going to catch these motherfuckers. <laughs> right, right. So I, I don't think it impact. Like, I, I think a the Bitcoin market is large enough to where this even if the US government had to buy something like like $100 million, right? That's probably going to push the needle a little bit, but not that much. Um, so I don't think this impacted the Bitcoin market. I do think probably it was a ransomware attack. It could have been by a form, by a by a nation state. I wouldn't be surprised if it was done by, you know, Russia or China. Let me put my tinfoil hat on real quick. Um I I think it's actually a pretty solid theory <clears throat> the ransomware attack. It's like the coincidences of it happening across countries that are not inherently connected you know like canada america maybe the fact that it was delayed by a day still weird <clears throat> but i also think um you know that's been the topic of cybersecurity like forever is like we're at the point where infrastructure is going to be a major risk to a lot of people because the cybersecurity there isn't top notch and you know people have capitulated for years they're like foreign states are going to try and affect like travel and power grids <clears throat> and water grids and things like that so like that doesn't surprise me i'm with ian though like i don't know if it would move the bitcoin needle because like i guess it depends what they demanded financially but like call it 150 million which is a lot of money and like there's a certain point where it's like nah we're just not going to travel for a while we're not going to send you 400 million you know and so i like, call it 150 million like I think America's probably got that ready. You know what I mean? Like we could, we could send that if we wanted to. It's not, I, I think also it would make no sense to go buy it and pump the market really hard to have to replenish, re, you know what I mean? Like there's just, that just doesn't make any financial sense. And so I think it's probably not what removed the needle on Bitcoin, but I, I would bet my money that there's like definitely something nefarious that happened in all these different airline, all the air industries, because I would also bet that, one of us built it, all the other systems are semi-similar, maybe the same thing, but maybe not exactly the same, but very close. And so like, if you figure one out, I bet you figure out a backdoor to a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, probably because they probably have to talk to each other, right? So yeah. of course they have <laughs> to interact in some way. Otherwise it's like, hey, we're flying. You know what I mean? Like you, you got to call up Canada. It's like, hey, you're clear to the US border. You know, look out after Good luck. That. <laughs> call Canada also, when you get it, there. If you get some credentials, like there's this there's this idea in cybersecurity called um, escalation, where you kind of start out at a low point and then you try and get higher and higher levels of access. Um, if they were if 
hackers were able to escalate to the point where they just have admin passwords. They could they could log into literally every single computer in every single airport across the United States. So not not surprising that they are able to take down literally everything. Um, I think you guys would be surprised to actually see the amount of malware attacks that occur on a day-to-day basis. Um, it's crazy. You can set up a honeypot, which is basically like a trap for uh, hackers, um, that it's just a server with an open port that um, just is accepting all traffic and allowing people to come in. It gets pinged like uh, like an unreasonable amount <laughs> by uh, all sorts of servers from China, from Russia, from Europe, from North Korea. Like it's it's crazy. There are literally millions and millions and millions of malware attacks that are sent across borders daily. This this is the thing that I f- I find that so interesting. And also, it's like, obviously, it comes with the territory, right? You can build systems that will will just repeatedly attack, 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 which you can't do physically, right? So there's just a different space. I remember I saw the, um, it was like the former director of cybersecurity for the FBI, or at least for like their Boston office or something. And he was talking about exactly this, because somebody had asked the question, um, you know, like, how do you preempt that? Like, how do you prevent them? And he's like, well, you don't. That's the thing. You just have to be prepared for them. And they were asking, well, how do you investigate he's like well the goal is to not have to right so that's that's the the point is like it's okay if they're hitting you as long as you know they're there and what they're doing and then once it gets to the point where you need an investigation right it's like you've something has slipped and it's it's already a problem like you have to close that door first that's the biggest issue so the idea of like i just like in my head the idea of like all these different nation states and bad actors attacking the same point all at the same time and what you're looking for is not seeing them do it but like something goes wrong somewhere else and you have to figure out like was that them and work your way backwards it's such a tricky thing to track never mind to like be ahead of like impossible to be ahead of right one of the things i think is terrifying is with things like chat gpt getting better like ai eventually is a problem but one thing i think is like the biggest vulnerability in every security system are humans And so chat GPTs become so conversational that like, I was thinking about this the other day and I hesitate to say this, but like, it could just blast communication to people and like try and form relationships and get access. Like that's something that's like actually reasonable with chat GPT. And I know that sounds dumb, but like there are people that just aren't great with computers that have access to things they probably shouldn't. And if somebody asks for something seems legit, comes from a reasonable source and is conversational in English, a lot of times they'll pass that off or in their, whatever their like primary language is. And so like, I think that's something we're going to see a lot more soon. And it's something that like, I think that's like why cybersecurity is probably one of the fastest growing industries. It's like, it's just going to keep growing because as tech grows, so does the need for cybersecurity. Now I'm scared. Thanks, guys. No, Ian just shared a uh, threatmap.checkpoint.com. It's a live cyber threat map. There's been 11.5 million cyber attacks on this day in, in counting. So we're just watching cyber attacks go around the world right now. It's, it's pretty crazy. Where do they get this data? Like, what, How's this collected? Do you know? Um, this is collected from a group of uh, anti-malware 
uh, services that basically report to a centralized Got it. Makes sense. database. Yeah. That's really cool. So this is a, yeah. a, um, a sample of all the attacks even. Yeah. I actually, uh, I worked for my college when I was, I was attending there as a, uh, uh, security researcher, like an intern. Um, and base, there's literally a room in the college that like, it has all the dashboards and you can see all of the requests and traffic going in and out of the college network. And you can see, it's like, oh, there's malware coming in here. This is someone trying to ex access malware. Let's go notify that student and tell them, Hey, bring your computer in. We need to analyze it. That's um, amazing. Yeah, no, it's literally like, it's like a war room and you can like, you can pull down, um, uh, files from that that were sent across the network and you can basically be like oh this is this malware let's put it in a virtual machine and see what it does and do some analysis on it so like that's amazing that, that literally for large organizations this exists and and this data is reported all the time this that's is terrifying cool. to watch i actually don't yeah. like seeing this because it's like I closed just it every second there's tons of them and I expected most of them to be like, you know, all over the world. And it's like, nah, people love US. And the it seems like Western the US Europe. does its fair share of attempts as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, okay. So this is I I genuinely, when I read this story, right? Because I I had seen the grounding of the flights and then honestly kind of forgot about it. And then this came up and I was like, I I felt the same where it's like, I don't know, I buy that. Like it 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 doesn't it wouldn't be surprising right that these i knew these attacks happen all the time now i'm even less surprised um and i do think like maybe part of the bitcoin price pumping has something to do with this i mean we were just talking about like the way that the crypto market reacts to news the grounding of flights might be indicative of a an environment where bitcoin would flourish right so that might actually just drive demand because it's it's this like idea that some centralized system is now failing again right that's interesting yeah yeah i mean maybe that's a bit of a stretch but at least like to me it seems like anytime you have some sort of news where it's like the the status quo is being shaken or the the very fundamentals of financial markets or the economy are in question in some way whether it's COVID or whatever that that's pretty good for crypto markets they seem to react overall positively if not immediately over some time like they people diversify away from those markets so maybe this is something like that where it's like oh this is not the best news good for bitcoin right all right next let's talk about um and <clears throat> so this, this is cool like i i like the beginning of the year because you get new data coming out that summarizes the previous year so we're getting some stuff coming out about 2022 um one of them is that the sec um increased their enforcement actions on crypto firms or projects by 50% in 2022. Uh, nearly half of those were against ICOs. So I believe they had 30 enforcement actions against cryptos. Um, 14 were on ICOs, uh, alleging that they're unregistered security offerings. Um, and then 57% of those also included allegations of fraud. So 14 projects, 14 ICOs, they say you're trying to sell an unregistered security and half of those you say, they're saying they're not even real, right? The, you're, you're defrauding people. Um, and so this is up over time. I think what's kind of interesting, so I think I looked it up, I believe last year in 2022, there were a hundred, I'm gonna find it, a hundred and something total enforcement actions. Um, it's like 140. 
40 or something total enforcement actions in 2022 and 30 of those were crypto companies. So it's not like they, they produced thousands of these, like an actual enforcement action from the sec is a big deal, right? Like they, I don't want to say they try not to do this stuff, but there's so many cases and so many things that they have to yeah. investigate, even to to really dig into it. They have to have a pretty good sense that like there's something going on. Um, so they investigate lots of stuff. And then even though they can't investigate everything, most of the things they investigate, nothing happens. The vast majority, like they they there's nothing they can do or need to do or they just wait. Like they see something and say, all right, we'll wait and see, see what happens. So um, I actually think 30 is a pretty decent amount. And so that puts us at about like seven of those at least are fraudulent for fraudulent reasons. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting to me because that's like 23 are, are I would I guess, like real crypto projects that the SEC feels like are illegal in some way. Right. So I would have guessed that most of them would have been fraudulent in some way. But the fact that they're not is kind of surprising. And the fact that there's that many is not surprising, but it is telling that the SEC is really paying attention. I think we'll just see that continue to grow like it <clears throat> for a long time. It was pretty hard to do that. And now there's so much infrastructure toy and there's so many new systems that help you spin up a ICO or some type of offering or some type of token so quickly that I mean, more people it's available to more people. <clears throat> um, that said, I think they'll continue to get less and less lucrative. So they might eventually like dwindle because there isn't as much fraud opportunity there, but It'll be interesting to see what the next couple of years look like, because, I again, I think it just continues to get easier, like almost on a daily basis. And so if people can build marketing and hype behind something, I mean, they can sell it. FTX looking at you. So <laughs> I think that's something that's interesting. And there were two really quick. I think they said they brought action against two celebrities. Um, I couldn't find the second one. One of them is Kim Kardashian for endorsing um, one of these products. But. So yeah, that, that hype idea, they're aware of that too. Like they're, they're yeah bringing that specific charge against people. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> you got to be careful with ICOs. It's very easy to bit, get it labeled as a security. Um, you have to be really, really careful and you have to make sure that it functions like a token. And when I say token, it needs to be something that it can there needs to be something that it can be used for it needs to be like a, a great example is uh disneyland introduced their own currency um they created like these disney tokens that you could purchase before you go to disneyland and then you could go and spend them at disneyland on rides or uh or i think it was actually mostly food stands um or shows or something like that. But the, the idea is that you can actually spend them, right? Whereas a lot of ICOs are just like, this is effectively a stock in our company. Um, you can't spend it on anything. It doesn't really do anything. It's just got some pondonomics built into it. And that's it. That's all it is. Yeah, I mean the SEC is going to come after you if you do that, like, <laughs> and rightly so, right? Like, that, yeah. like, like the thing is, I'm all for like, obviously, I'm huge on Web three, but like, there's a point where it's like, okay, dude, there's no utility there. Like, you just you just listed your own stock for a business that has done nothing but create its own stock, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I, I actually, it's again one of those things. Like, there, the the times that they bring charges 
it's it's usually that there is something legitimately going on. And in this case, and I was just rereading, the report actually has two different numbers, and this is actually from Cornerstone. Um, so there's a different place where they say 21 actions are fraudulent. So there's there's some conflicting numbers. Cornerstone is a it's a reliable source, so I think it's just a typo um, in one place. But um, the yeah, so the fact that there's there's this many and they're going specifically after that fraud, like all that makes sense. And I think those are parts of the market that the more regulation is actually shown to actually work or or not even work, just just happen, right? Like that you're actually going to be charges brought, things like that is good. Like that's just good because it doesn't do anything to dissuade from, you know, the decentralization. Like they're not saying that that's the issue, right? This is not a anything that's condemning the idea or the concept or the legitimacy of the space at all. It's just going in and saying like, these ones are clearly like just trying to steal people's money. Right. And we need to prevent that regardless of what the product is. You shouldn't be able to do that. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, the fact that for some of these coins, the, like, I would be surprised if any of the coins that are the ICOs that are, are problematic here, if any of those, as you said, Ian, like don't have a clear use, right? Like I think whatever they're bringing judgment against now is probably the most obvious, clear violators at this point. Um, and which is good. I think you need to at least set that level and set the tone there. Um, all right. So we just, somebody just mentioned FTX. Let's talk about FTX. We They've barely come up this whole time. So the next story. So I saw this, this is also from Crypto Slate. Every third member of the US Congress received money from FTX. Uh, they donated cash to 196 members of this current U.S. Congress. <laughs> this is just... Dude, I'm, I'm sure they just align with the ideals of all 196 of those people, right? Of course they do. Of course, of course this... all of those people who are on opposing sides of the line and all in different districts all have similar opinions that FTX strongly agrees with. Of course. This is, uh, you know... <laughs> They're just taking, for everybody listening that's sarcasm that's, that's strong sarcasm hard sarcasm <laughs> i this wonder is like politicians taking... are going to give back the user funds oh dude this is great <laughs> i read into this did you see that some of them donated it and my favorite part about that is is like you just donated stole it like look i get it that's nice but what about the people that lost their money? Like, shouldn't that make its way back to the people? Like, it's Put like, it hey, I fund. know all your money was stolen, but to show that I'm morally superior, I'm gonna give it to somebody else. <laughs> gonna donate it to the to the human fund. <laughs> Me, I'm the human. I'm the yeah. human. Yeah. <laughs> so I donated that to my own family. So it's like I'm obviously I'm okay. <laughs> I had a buddy who really needed it, and you know, I just figured, yeah, it, it's. This is uh, equivalent to taking the over and the under on uh, uh, some game. Like it's in this case, it makes sense, right? If you're FTX, it's like, let's just hedge and just get enough of each side that it doesn't matter what happens. Um, but I just, I think it's hilarious. And that, that was the thing I was going to get to too. It's like, so now what, right? Where does this money go? Um, and the other thing I wonder, like, I'd love to, I, I haven't looked at the list uh, specifically to see, uh, but it, it looks like it's mostly uh, Democrats. It's leading a bit more towards Democrats. Um, and But it's like, I don't know, two-thirds Democrats, one-third Republicans or something like that. Uh, which, and again, like, 
I, it would be really strange if 196 members of Congress had something in common. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's just like, it's almost, it, there's no way. And the other yeah. thing about it is why, like the only reason you donate to that many campaigns, like, it's not like you have headquarters in all of those districts or employees and all of those, you know what I mean? Like, it's literally just buying goodwill. Like that's all it can be. That's the only reason you'd pepper 196 of them. The thing that I think is even more shocking, like now that we know about FTX, it's like, yeah, obviously that was the strategy, but why did 196 politicians just randomly accept large sums of money from a business that like, <clears throat> I would bet everything 196 of 196 did not understand anything about FTX. You know what I mean? Our like there's, are politicians in the business of turning away free money? You're exactly right. But what I'm getting at is I think that's the that's the bigger problem to me. It's like, yeah. why is it that someone can buy that many people? You know what I mean? Like, that's that's crazy. You would think at some point they're like, didn't you give money to like everyone? Like, I should probably avoid this. But to your point, Ian, they're like free money. You've got my Ooh. you've got my <laughs> ear. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a, the thing, too, is like the. I just, I mean, just the idea, the thing that gets me is is two things. The idea that this money is able to get into hands. I mean, it, it basically, it, say, it says that he spent personally, SBF spent $40 yeah. million dollars on donations to Democrats and $24 million on donations to Republicans. Obviously, you can do that through super PACs and things like that. Like, it's it's possible. It's just an insane number. And the the idea that somebody wouldn't be aware of who was putting that money there and what their interests were. And the idea that like, well, next time around, I'm going to need money again. And as I want that person to give me that kind of like in. So I'm, I'm laying this all out in simple terms. We all understand it. Everybody who's listening here is is like, yeah, of course, like you you pay money and you buy the politician and they vote the way you want. The fact that nobody here is like absolutely like aghast at like, oh, I can't believe this is how this is like yeah. is is what's bullshit, right? Like, I, and no matter which side of the aisle, how far left, right, middle, whatever, everybody understands that it's all bullshit, right? There's very little actual like influence happening other than the money that's pouring in, and that's where you really need to concern yourself. And just the fact that like this one individual is able to put that money there now, I mean, they're kind of scot free. Like all these politicians get to go, whatever your interests were, I don't have to think about them anymore. I still have some of that money um it's just it's it's absolutely yeah it's ridiculous dude i would <laughs> to be honest i would love to know what companies have put money in that many other like that many politicians hands because i would bet that you could look at like the number of politicians funded and be like nah we should investigate something here right like it's just it that it doesn't make sense like if you were voting if you were putting money in a couple of politicians like oh these people keely align with our objectives like that's just politics but like if you just put it in everybody's hand it's like wait what are we actually doing here like why why is it 196 of them <laughs> yeah but i guarantee you pretty much every big corporation in the united states is doing exactly that like you know ups amazon uh microsoft facebook now meta I I would know, be they're all like, doing think... it i would be curious honestly i'm sure they're all funding but 196 out of the total like I'm, I would, I would just be interested. I, I bet you're right. And I bet I'm like just being overly optimistic, but that seems like an extreme amount of like, I just, it doesn't make any sense from a, from a perspective of 
the money should align with your objectives, right? It's like, there's no way that many politicians agree on anything. <laughs> I I would love to look at it too, because Ian, I think, I, I know you're right. Like I know from working at a couple other larger companies, like that's one of the things that I was interested in when I was working there. So I went and looked and was like, well, who do you donate to? And there is that. They donate to both sides of the aisle. It's a number of people. But 196 is, is, I think, a lot. I would be, I'm now really curious. Just like, could you actually see that? Like, if we went and looked, is there like a sudden jump, right? Like most large, wealthy people will donate to 40 or less, right? But then if you jump up to over 100, there's like five people. And it's like all the sketchiest people you've ever heard of in your life happen to do that, right? I'd be really curious. The other thing um, that's that would be interesting to see in that case is like, I ju I'm just reading the story again. So the 40 million to 24 million um, is SBF himself. Um, but I don't, it, it seems to be saying here, this does not include donations to, to PACs. So these are direct donations. I don't know how you donate that much money because there's limitations, but it says to candidates and their causes. So that means they're probably donating to like nonprofits and things like that yeah. that are clearly right, left aligned. But so that means that on top of this, there's also the money that w flows into PACs and super PACs that then flows to all the candidates. So I guess technically you could say like every member of Congress is getting money from everybody who, who puts money in a PAC. But here he specifically went individually and donated. Another thing I think institutions do a lot is they hide their money a bit better than he did. So they will donate to individuals, but usually it's a pretty obvious reason why, right? There's an up and coming, you know, Republican congressman who's trying to get elected in a blue area that's traditionally, you know, anti-bank, right? Like, so they they put their money in this person because it's clearly good for them. But otherwise, yeah, they, they'll put it into some, some fund or something to hide it a bit better. All right. Cool. All right, let's switch to games. So we did a lot of crypto today. I like that. Um, we'll talk gaming and then we'll do oh, we still got 15 minutes so we'll talk a little already and then if time allows we'll talk about my new obsession that ian introduced me to yesterday so um i want to go back to some more predictions for uh the gaming market so mobile games in particular um this i found on linkedin um i found it from chris heatherly who is quoting our story by uh, eric i don't know how to say your last name sufert i will post all these these links. Um, so the first prediction is mobile gaming will experience a systemic move to the middle that will lead to a resurgence of casual gameplay mechanics. Um, really curious about both of your thoughts on this. Um, this is one of the things I've been thinking about a bit lately is because we're doing really heavy deep dives into the mobile gaming market and like taking like very kind of nuanced specific cuts of different genres, subgenres, mechanics, all that stuff. And so one of the things that I'm curious about is just with the number of games and things like where things are moving. So this idea to me seems pretty appealing, but I just wonder if you guys share the sentiment or if you are already seeing this or if you've experienced this, it's kind of move to the middle. I I don't know exactly what move to the middle means. Um, I will I think say what it means that... is like, and I'll just give you my take of what how I interpret it, which I could be wrong. But what I took this to mean was like a um, uh, I don't know know how to say it, but like a a stand not standards, but like a a less differentiated mobile gaming market, right? You'll see lots of titles that are very, very, very similar. Everything becomes a little bit more flat, right? So you just see uh, this. I thought had already happened a bunch, but I think what he's saying is that it's going to continue. And so what you end up with is 
much more casual games will be the thing that kind of ends like up a, like out. if gaming is a bell curve the, the bell curve kind of tightens a little bit towards exactly the yeah got it perfect okay yeah. Um, oh, really? Wait, first, let's call out. That was a great way to put that. Perfect. Because as soon as you said that, I was like, ah, I get it. So <laughs> nice job. Thanks for translating for us, Ian. Sure, now sure. I get what I was saying, too. This I just great. translate everything into <laughs> math, and that's how I understand the world. Well, that's um, honestly, that's how it works for me, too. So like, <laughs> when you said bell curve, I was like, okay, I'm following. <laughs> um, Listening. I think that's probably accurate. The thing is, is like the mobile gaming market, as it is right now is very specific right it's women in their 30s and 40s and late 20s um the reason being is like mostly that age range i think is when adults tend to have kids and what happens is is millennials have grown up with games and so they still like gaming but they don't have time to sit down and play games so they play mobile games instead um, I, the reason why mobile games, I think, are appealing to women in large part is I think largely, especially my age group and older than me, women didn't grow up playing video games as hardcore as, as men did. Um, and so they tend to have a more casual outlook on video games. And I think that's why mobile games are trending that way. The newer generation, actually, I think there's a lot of women who are playing more intense and more competitive games and i think that's great to see personally um and i think in the future mobile gaming may switch away from casual gaming but for now i think i i just this is just anecdotal but my fiance plays a ton of mobile games and they're all pretty casual um and i think she's the tar target demographic now i don't play mobile games because they're kind of like ca casual games to me are a little boring. They don't like, they don't light that fire in me like competitive games do or in-depth complicated games. Right. So that's why I play PC games, but I'm sure if I have a kid and I have no time to play my PC games, I'll probably play some mobile games. I think one of the things we're seeing here too, though, is, is like, this seems like a prediction about the gaming industry, but this is a prediction about the broader market companies are going to take less risks. The, the times are not as good. So if there's a mechanic that's working that you see on a competitor, and this is true of gaming industry as a whole in general, like you adopt that mechanic and utilize it. Well, there's a lot of games that were like trying to reinvent new mechanisms and things like that to be unique when they need to like survive for a while. And I don't think that's necessarily like truly the case because gaming does pretty well in bad economies. But still, I think what will happen is we'll see people spending less money on risk. And that's kind of followed up by number point number two of him, which is like instead of spending per DAU, you'll see M&A pick up and like that's always true in bad times. It's easier to buy something that works that has a stable, you know, user base than it is to build something new and adopt a new user base. And it's like, I'm curious if this is a, if this is a prediction about gaming as much as it is about like economics and business, right? It's like, I think every industry is going to be doing something kind of similar with the exception of like AI and stuff, because like inherently there is no way for those to move to like, poor mechanics because it doesn't exist <laughs> but to your point i mean it, you could go from the other side like instead of 
developing your own AI system. You go buy somebody who's, you know, not live and has users, but, or maybe they have users, but that, you know, maybe doesn't have a revenue model. They have the technology. So you buy the technology up. You're totally right that this is, this makes perfect sense given market mechanics. I do like the idea that this move to the middle might also be because there is such a consistent, reliable user base in mobile gaming that it it doesn't really make sense even to try to differentiate unless you're trying to find new users. And that's really difficult in this day and age, but especially in, in a, a kind of down market, it's hard to get people to to switch and do new things, right? So yeah, I, th- I think given what the market's doing, both these things make sense. I'll be really curious to see the M&A activity because also it's a down market, which means less funds available, but companies are cheaper too. It's a good time to buy somebody is when the market's down, you get a better price for them. So it's easier to get a, a better return on that. So it's all the this kind of mix. Um, this also then I think leads into point number three, which is I don't think a market-driven um, prediction. So here he says, user level personalization will create a competitive advantage and overtake user acquisition in terms of resourcing and internal studio infrastructure. I find this really fascinating as a prediction, partly because, because of the way that Artie is structured. Um, I think this is something we've leaned into quite a bit at, at Artie is like focusing very heavily on user experience um, and kind of community experience. And that the idea being here that like that type of customization or customization ability or personalization is what's going to differentiate. So maybe the mechanics are becoming more standardized or homogenized maybe there's fewer new companies or whatever is new is getting bought up and that's how people acquire users but what eventually is going to happen is that you need to differentiate so combining all three of these what i think this suggests is that you're going to see companies being bought up that provide this the users user special it's not going to be oh we came up with a new game right it's a entirely new genre subgenre new concept new mechanic it's going to be same mechanics different way for people to interact with the game, right? Different way to keep your attention and and keep you focused on that game. Yeah, one of the things I'll say about that too is I think these predictions are like a generalization of the market. I still am a firm believer that the winners of a down market are the people that pioneer. Like that's the the big totally. winners. Like you can be a survivor and you can get through it and you can be like in maybe a relatively good position, but the ones that like really take off and succeed are the ones that are willing to push boundaries in rough times because if you can do it and balance it here, you can do it really easily in good times. And so I think you're right for sure, but I think there will be some companies that still like kind of push these boundaries uh, all while leaning into like the personalization and still leaning on like some core gameplay mechanics, but spinning up entirely new ideas and like uh, storylines and structures. And so like, yeah, I think I think this is probably what will happen generally, but I think there will still be ones that really win and like come out the other side, not just like, surviving but thriving you know and that's i guess that's what his prediction is though inherently right it's like this is what the majority will do (laughs) yeah i think um i think there's also levels to personalization right there's there's really strong communities that surround games that are open and by open, I mean they are editable, moddable by the user base. And that really is the gateway to like supreme personalization. Like just totally. look at VR chat, right? It it's literally just a platform that some devs made, and 99.9% of the content is made by the user base. 
but it's the most popular VR. Like, I mean, you don't see people in Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse, do you? <laughs> no. But there are people in VR chat, right? For and sure. VR chat is just like this bare bones. But you can it's import infrastructure more than anything. It, it really yeah. is. It's just infrastructure. And that's really what drives communities and personalization is literally giving people the ultimate freedom of like, here you go. Here are the tools. Build it yourself. Yeah. And you can see that across other games, obviously, like Minecraft, Roblox, like the, these massive, Skyrim. massive hits. Skyrim, like it's. It's some of the biggest games of all time, honestly, that that have figured out a way to do exactly that, which is provide just enough infrastructure that it's it looks nice enough and it functions, and then you do whatever you want on top of it. I mean, even like my eight year old who loves Minecraft, like all he watches is videos of people modding it, and like he that's all he wants to do is like just. Well, I mean, a great example is like GTA, right? Like it can have one game for like decades and people are like, this is the best game ever made. Like if Call of Duty or somebody that didn't build that personalization was to have like a single game for five years, it would die off. Like it would would at least slow down a ton, you know, like they have to put a new one out every year. But those worlds and infrastructure systems like can literally just roll out one game and be like on top forever. (laughs) Roblox too. Yeah, Roblox is a great example of that. Yep. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's uh let's turn to some some NFT news. This is actually already related. So I saw in uh, on the Discord one of our uh, Discord members uh, bought one of our season two NFTs with the artifact on it. Um, and so actually I just want to call this out. So we had um seven of these minted. So there's seven different uh, NFTs in the second season collection that have the artifact. We haven't told people what it is, but at some point, if you hold this, you will be able to get an item um, in real life, something worthwhile. We, I, I, we can't say what it is. We've, did you guys, did you guys see it? Like when they, they sent the update? I've around? seen it. It's cool. It's, it's really super cool. cool. It's, it's, yeah, it's very cool. Um, in and fact, so, if anyone's selling one, well, I'm just kidding, but it is very cool. <laughs> yeah, I'd have yeah. To, I didn't even realize one was listed for 0.25 ETH. That's a steal, man. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know if it was ever listed because I don't see a listing for it actually on, on OpenSea. I think it was just an offer that was accepted. So somebody just threw an offer out and it was accepted. I, that's what it looks like. Or maybe they, they talked about it on Discord. I don't know. But um, but yeah, so I actually just was because obviously like volumes down, you know, people aren't buying and selling these a, a ton, but just as a reminder that like these are out there and also they, you know, there's now at least a recent price set. And this one is, is, is a cool NFT even without the artifact on it. Yeah. Um, I like this one a, a ton and there's a bunch of random like rare stuff that's that's on here and it's just it was fun just to be reminded to go back and like look through traits because i'd seen them a hundred times but haven't really looked at it in the last few weeks and then just go back and be like oh yeah i forgot we have a uh uh what was the one i was looking at oh sass and ass emote <laughs> it's just yeah it just makes me laugh every time i don't know these are great it's just going back and seeing not only okay there's this added utility this benefit that you can get from holding them um but they're still like these these NFTs are so high quality. Like you, I, you kind of take it for granted after seeing them so many times. I'm excited to see them in game. That's going to happen with the next patch uh, that we release. And I'm excited to actually use my NFT in game and see it in the intro scene and all that sort of stuff. And honestly, 
on I, the on the like pre-releases that we've done some testing on it just i immediately get more competitive because i'm like my my already can't lose you know what i mean it's like I sh- i'm not gonna let him be a loser what what kind of owner would i be if i well, let him lose? you know what's funny too is like i recognize both of your um nfts i know exactly what they look like and so if i was playing the game and i saw you i would 100 percent immediately know i was playing i against think that's you. something i'm realizing too like the more i've seen it like people are gonna and we see this all the time, right? Like there's a lot of people that have been pitching this for a long time on Twitter, even LinkedIn. Like if you use it as your PFP, it should remain that because it's like you're, it's synonymous with your like brand identity online. And I'm realizing that too. Like when I see certain arties, I'm like, oh, that's Ian. Oh, that's Rob. And I think that's something that like the general community will start to do soon. And I like, of course that's the idea, but it's crazy to see it play out. Like with me, non-intentionally thinking about that relationship, you know, it just like, it kind of just happened. Clicks. And that relationship is like, oh, that's, I know who that is. <laughs> I can't wait to beat Ryan because I know what his, his NFT that he uses. It looks like too. It's like, Real like, challenge is Steven. Yeah. He's the final yeah. boss. Yeah. We, <laughs> we Honestly, I wish we, I would. I wish he would build that into the game himself. He should just be the final boss. Like, I'm sure there's some rules that's... where that's biased, but I think he should be. But no, that should be that we should actually have an event where the final boss is just an avatar of Steven. Like, I would, I would personally be so into that. Like, and I know everybody the cap and everything. Exactly. <laughs> His hat, and it's just like, can you imagine the like, absolute shots he would send at you like it just oh, very very calmly, very like just calmly just like ruin you <laughs> basically i think if, if he was a final boss you can't miss like you would have to be first shot and never miss that's that's it would have to be near that level he's gonna have to very rarely miss all right we're we're pitching this <clears throat> um yeah, right, we so, have to pitch it because obviously he won't do it. But I think if we get enough internal momentum, we can force him to be a boss. <laughs> what I, I want is Steven as the final boss while drinking an, an espresso martini. And he's just shooting <laughs> just a nice espresso martini. All right. Yeah, um, you, you guys have another minute? Yeah. Yeah, I still got minute. All right, let's talk about CubeSats. So, <laughs> so... Ian and I were chatting yesterday for a while. We talked about a bunch of stuff that was unrelated to anything here. But one of the things I was talking about, my fascination with everything space related. And so he told me about CubeSats, which for some reason I had not heard of. Um, And so these are 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter, tiny little satellites that can be packed into racks and then set off into space. And this is something that uh, SpaceX in particular is is offering right you can actually just pay a small amount of money to get your satellite on the, sh- the ship and it gets launched in space i'm so curious and fascinated to start like i've just started really thinking about the economics of space like two days ago and that's my new obsession so this idea like the efficiency of this the fact that it reduces the cost of travel for anybody else who wants to be on one of these flights right it, it diversifies those guys like i find this to be such a cool idea um, the one downside that you and I talked about, Ian, is like the increase in potential space junk. But I'll stop there because obviously there's a, a positive and negative to anything. So I find this really fascinating, just like the idea of like what it can unlock and like the the types of w- the ways that companies can use this is is I think the potential is massive. So I'm a- I was actually thinking about it, and these CubeSats they're so small, and generally they they can have propulsion systems on them but generally they don't so oft, oftentimes they're in decaying orbits so they'll just fall ah. into the atmosphere and burn up 
and not really cause that much junk. And they'll just, they'll be around for like a year or two and then they'll just fall into the atmosphere. That's and what I was actually going to say is like the space cool. junk part of this isn't, especially on something like this that lacks propulsion, like the odds of it making it through the atmosphere in any way, shape or form is almost zero. So it's also not going to crash down on us. Yeah. And then on top it of that, it up. doesn't have enough, it doesn't have anything to escape the, you know, that like these aren't going far enough that they're just like mindlessly wandering. They're probably right. just going to slowly be pulled back in and burn up. <laughs> yeah. The, the I mean, the concern is that we are launching more and more stuff into space. And if something collides with something else, it can be a cascading effect and just destroy low Earth orbit for us. Yeah, dude, but we're not going to think about that. We're going to keep shipping stuff. Exactly. Let's that's, that's, let's keep that's just, future human. Let's keep problem. eating stuff around the Earth. It's <laughs> it's like, oh, we've made this place inhabitable, so our only chance is one day to live in another space. Well, what if we make it to where we can't get out of this world? Yeah, but this also then goes to to the uh, the the solar shield that we were talking about to re reduce the impact of uh, increased temperatures on Earth. If we have enough yeah. space junk, it will reflect enough of the sunlight away from us that it's actually gonna gonna help us live here longer. Dude, what is, is the planet? What is the, the planet in Star Wars that's the junk world? What is it? I can't think of it. Like they just go there for junked parts and everything, but that's literally what we could become. Our junked parts in space is what will keep us alive. And yeah. we become the dump of the universe. And that's what keeps <laughs> us alive. That that's a sustainable economy in the future, though. Like that's you <laughs> always need a place for trash to go and to recycle stuff. I mean, that's <laughs> Real long term thinking. I Planets think. become industries, like just specific industries. That you know, you got that. This Let's sounds see. like the making of a Web three game that I would play. So I just want to go back real quick to it. CubeSats. Um, these things are crazy. First of all, it's thirty k per pound, but generally a ten by ten by ten centimeter thing is not going to weigh more than a pound. So, especially if it's like mostly just electronics and computer parts. Mm. and like maybe some sensors so right. so these things are really accessible like for especially for like a startup or a research lab like mm. they have that kind of money that they can just chuck this stuff into space um these things are like i mean there was a craze a couple years ago about iot stuff where iot mm. stuff is going to take over the world and it kind of has um this is like IoT stuff for space. There's just going to be so much more resolution of like just science that like measuring different gas levels in the atmosphere or um, just monitoring stuff in low Earth orbit itself and just like running experiments. It's it's CubeSats are honestly a crazy space re uh revolution that's happening under everyone's noses what's crazy to me is 30k i would have thought like you know accessible i would have thought a lot more than that though like at 30k and that's like kind of the starting point that only gets cheaper right like because like as more flights happen and as you're able to offset the cost of flights by launching people's cubesats while you fly not only does like the CubeSats get cheaper, but like every space flight gets cheaper too. Cause there's like some offsetting revenue. And so like, I don't know, I'm really bullish on the industry of space. Like, I really think that's something that I, I joke about it all the time, kind of, but like, I think in my lifetime, my daughter's lifetime, for sure, that's like a very viable industry. Like pe people will be doing things as like 
for trips or for interest in space. I really believe that. And so like seeing anything that offsets the cost of just launching is a huge pro in my mind, and not to mention the data that's going to be collected from all of this, which will make launches easier, which will make us more confident in certain things. And so I think this is really cool. And to be honest, I'd never heard of it. And I really, really enjoy reading about space and space industry. So I'm pretty shocked this is the first I've heard of. It. <laughs> you know, you know, what's wild about this too. Uh, CubeSats are the reason why Starlink is happening. Starlink is CubeSats are basically paying for Starlink because what's happening is, is all these CubeSats are being packaged into these rockets. They're paying uh -huh. for the trip. And then Starlink satellites are hitching a ride it's on like, the way oh. too. So, so you guys go into space? You go to space? Exactly. Right, exactly. Oh, I don't, yeah, you can just ride along with me. That's not a problem. Can exactly. you pick up your share of the gas? It's ride sharing for satellites. It's awesome. That's amazing. Dude, what's, what's crazy about that, though, is think about it. Like in a world where this is, you know, if they can offset the cost of launching Starlink, there's eventually a world where it's like, okay, we have a couple of seats. If you want to ride to space real quick, because, you know, they're landing their rockets as that gets better. If you want to ride to space real quick, like, okay, a thousand bucks a flight. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what it'll be, but there's a real world where like, I think that becomes like financially accessible to like middle-class people, honestly. And that's to me, dude, if someone told me today, I could go to like low earth orbit for a negligible fee. I'm on that thing. Like I really oh, yeah. am. I think I am. <laughs> Same. The the thing that I love too about this, I think this, this really embodies the idea. Like, um, so the idea of the amount of capital that it takes just to get into orbit, right? Like the amount of money to go from the idea that I want to leave earth to, Oh, I'm in orbit is insane. I mean, whether it's like, even if you're, you're um, SpaceX now you have all this infrastructure. If you want to launch tomorrow, it costs an insane amount of money, even with everything ready to go. Never mind new industry, new businesses that are forming or whatever. Not that there's going to be a ton of competitors in the like the the rocket space, but the fact that it's so expensive means you have this very strong incentive to offset those costs every single time, which means that you have to incentivize or find ways to to encourage people to pay you. So this is one way, right? Ride sharing for satellites, love that. Um, the idea of like using this for like travel or tourists, like that that becomes part of the business model not just like the thing you're selling, right? You could sell it, but it also becomes like, well, what I really do for money is I bring stuff to ISS, right? That really pays the bills. But if I can offset my costs, I still get the same fee from whoever, NASA and all the other groups. They still pay me the same, but I've now offset all my costs. It's a margin maker. It's, it's like, amazing. It's like, I'm already making tons of money. How do I fix my margins? And it's like, I make it to where I don't absorb the cost entirely myself. But the the way that you make, you, 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 increase that margin is like life-changing technology yeah. altering things like the idea of anybody can just put their own satellite even if it's only there for a short time like just research wise like a university could put a bunch of these up in space right like and they they probably need to and they can get government like all these things and then the fact you get people up there and then it becomes like well what else can we do maybe you bring people up on the rocket and then there's like oh we invented this thing that lets you like just glide back to earth in low earth orbit that we just launch you off and then the rocket does its thing we don't have to worry about our tourists they're sent back safe like on and on and on like what then what do we use the technology for what does that develop like so there's all this upside i also just love the idea of like space Everybody, the argument for space is not like we need to be there because that's where resources are, even though that is part of what we're doing. The big argument is like, 
we go up there because it forces us to innovate and it forces us to create new, really advanced technologies to make it cheap and safe and inexpensive, which down the road, 10, 20 years from now, develops this entirely new set of technology that we wouldn't have had if we didn't bother to try something really, really hard just because it's hard. The idea, like space to me just feels like we're doing it because it's hard. And the idea that most people seem pretty on board with that I find endlessly fascinating and like optimistic. Like it makes me very optimistic that at least in this one space, we can see like, yeah, we get a lot out of just making sure we're trying stuff. This makes me wish I had stuck to my astronaut dreams as a little boy more. Honestly, it's you like, could be you know, there I should have I should have stu stuck it out. Football wasn't the play. Astronaut life was for me. No, like I think I, I totally agree with you, Rob. Like we are a species of explorers that's that's what we do that's what we are and anything that furthers that people are on board they are down and you know it's it's crazy i mean there's there are real incentives to be in space first of all there's asteroids out there that are worth like literally more than like quadrillions of dollars <laughs> of the entire world for 10 years yeah. you know um but also there's stuff like there are manufacturing processes that only work in zero G. So there are potentially materials that we could create manufacture in space and then ship it down to earth or just keep it in space and keep it in orbit and build stuff in space. So there's reason there's legitimate reasons to go into space. And the fact that if you just chuck something hard enough around the earth, it tends to kind of just stay up there um without doing anything is kind of awesome and also you can just put a ton of sensors on it and look at the earth for just free watch. that's yeah, the thing to me. the data the data capture to be honest now that i know it's thirty thousand dollars i'm gonna start putting money in a piggy bank i want to send my own satellite up because i'm just curious what i get back you know like it's like that's it's just such a cool thing like even if you don't know exactly what you're solving with it the data capture of just constantly having these satellites up there capturing like you know atmospheric data you know solar data solar wind data things like that like it's just that's that's huge to me and just like i don't know i think it's like the beginning of a really valuable industry and a great example is like lithium probably exists somewhere else in the world and if we really want to move towards electric vehicles we know that's a restricting re somewhere else in the universe we know that's a restricting resource well like is it what if that's just like readily available or on one of these asteroids that we already know have like a ton amount tons of uh, materials on them you know what i mean it's like it's just the possibilities are kind of endless <laughs> um it makes me think of two things so the data side of things obviously is it, is very intriguing because you're right. You could send it up and ask it to look at things that other people aren't like, and use that. You could sell it. You could keep it. You could do whatever you want for it. The other thing it makes me think of is I was listening to a story. Um, I think it was on radio lab maybe, but it was, it, they were talking about this guy who's collecting weather data. And typically in order to collect weather data, what they've done is they still send balloons up. And that's basically how most of the weather data is collected. And then like temperatures are just either stations that they have or people volunteer and like, report what the temperature is right and so obviously it's not the most efficient or reliable and so there's this guy who created a company where they have these drones that they'll deploy to create weather like like hyper specific weather predictions so like if 
say Boston is planning a parade and they're like, we have a play- parade in two weeks. Do we do it on Saturday or Sunday? We need to know the weather. They'll put these drones up in the air and leave them there and let them observe, right, for a while. Or they'll put them somewhere else in the country and observe there. And so it's they get high enough up where it's like it, it gives you enough information, but they're not so high that it's like you're looking at the entire world from a satellite. So the combination of data, too, is really interesting because you not only have this coming from above with all these different satellites, but on the ground, you get more data, better data. The combination of those two things then teaches you something you didn't even know. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, did you see the um, the images from the, I think it was a Japanese flight that landed on a, on an asteroid? Did you see this and took some samples? But so it landed and they knew that, this, that it was going to be a somewhat soft surface. So that what they planned to do is it lands, takes a scoop of whatever the surface material is and then launches right away. Um, and, but they were more concerned too with like, I think the temperature or the speed or something. And so they needed to do it quick, but what ended up happening is they landed and it just sunk and sunk and sunk. And they had no idea it was entire like it's this asteroids full of all these metals, but it's so soft. And they said that they, now they know that asteroids, when they're seeing these little things fly off of it, that it's actually the entire asteroid is just like dissolving essentially as it goes. Like the idea that they land on, they had no clue this was going to happen and like that's the first thing they learned was like oh this is like essentially quicksand like you land on it and you just sink and they almost lost their the the vehicle the, the satellite whatever it is they almost lost it because they if it had sunk a little bit further it wouldn't have been able to escape that's <laughs> yes, right i just love it. it's like you would think that you would know like what's the surface we should be able to tell you can't tell we just learned that's that the like, stuff last I, that's week. the stuff i love it's just like that's like you know what I mean? Like we've made assumptions about things forever that like, you know, fairly sound, I would imagine, like seem reasonable, but then you land on it and you're like, oh, this is quicksand. Like this is, <laughs> we, we should get out of here, but now we yeah. know, so we can plan differently next time. Like that's exactly. just cool to me. Yeah. Well, it's all, it's all down to resolution, right? Like the yeah. thing is, is the size of asteroids compared to the size of space. Asteroids are tiny. tiny. <laughs> so it's a fair it's, point. It's yeah, a it's little like hard to know what they look that's like. That's right. It's like that pixel looks solid. That's a pretty exactly. solid pixel. They're like a, the size of a pixel, and you can well, see they're like, them moving it's pretty across hard. the screen. It hits Earth, it's pretty hard. And we know when it hits the moon, it's pretty hard. So it's got to be made of something hard. Yeah. It, it's not a criticism. It's more just like, I would have assumed, right? Like, I don't know. Like, what do I know? But I would have assumed, like, we know. Like, I can imagine it's a big rock. No, it's not. Like, and to find out that not only was I surprised, but that like people who do this for a living every day were like, Oh, holy shit. <laughs> this is a soft <laughs> thing. Like that's amazing. It's like, so I love we have it. landed. Is this a watercraft? Because it should have been. <laughs> <laughs> we had no idea. I right. wonder if like big globs of water are just floating around space, frozen hunks. Probably. Probably right. Somewhere. Probably, dude, honestly. And we're down here. Like, look at that rock flying across the sky. <laughs> It's funny. I had this, this, my son was saying something because we were, we saw a thing in a book where it was like, oh, there might be, there might have been ice on Mars. So it was an older book. And I was like, oh, they actually know that there was like, they, they know that there was since this book came out, like we found out that there was, and he goes, yeah, but uh, Neptune is made of all ice. Because I said, it was like, oh, this is a big deal. Like it's a first planet where we found ice. And he's like, Neptune is all ice. And I'm like, I don't think so. I looked up, it was like, yeah, it's all ice. It's ice of, it's not water ice. It's something else, but it was like, it's completely frozen. And it was one of those things where in the moment I was like, I guess I never thought of it, but I guess, yeah, that it's a, that planet is so far away and cold and it's a gas, it's a gas giant, right? So 
it should be frozen. <laughs> it's like, again, obvious if you think about it for half a second, but then when somebody like a, a seven-year-old points it out to you, you're like, oh yeah, I'm dumb. I didn't, didn't take it through. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I, mean, I love space, but I still can't decide my opinion on Pluto. You know what I mean? It's like, there's like, <clears throat> it's until it becomes accessible, there's just like the thought that goes into it is a lot of speculation or yeah. like hyper-specific things, not like general knowledge. <clears throat> yep. So it's it's exciting to see where it ends up. You know, it's funny. The reason why Pluto is no longer a planet is because they were finding so many Pluto-like bodies out there in the, in that region of space that are like, well, it's about the size of a moon. It's not really as big as a planet. So, like, how can we call it a planet? How can we classify? It's just all just subjective. And they were just finding way too many that were just like, nah, it's not. A planet. Yeah, someone at some point was like, who picked this one? Why this one? Like, exactly. There's a lot of these. I there's don't so know. many yeah. of them. It's know? like, are those all Pluto part one through one million? Or like, what are we going to do with this? Is that also <laughs> yeah. Dude, space is wild. There's there are moons around Jupiter where it rains methane. And there's also moons around Jupiter that have liquid oceans underneath, like massive sheets of ice. So it, it rains glass on some of them. Like it's it's insane. That's that, what just I that think concept is, so is like mind blowing. We're obviously all still children because we can talk about this forever. Like little boys would want to, but what I think <laughs> is really interesting is like that's a great example. Like it rains glass. Like there, there are places that are literally raining things that we manufacture and want to have. You know what I mean? Like I don't know exactly how that works, but it seems like supply chains and like materials and things are like a very natural want from space and it's like we didn't even know we were landing on a puddle you know it's like we thought it was a rock it's just <laughs> yeah. interesting to me yeah we're gonna get to the glass planet and be like oh it's not glass this is actually like these are diamonds like this is just pure <laughs> these are diamonds all of you that bought diamonds they're now worthless they're worthless <laughs> we got a planet full of these things we're swimming in them scrooge mcduck style we all use right, them I mean... as packing peanuts now <laughs> We're, 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 as a species, we're infants when it comes to space exploration. We're, we're going to figure it out in a couple hundred years, but right now we, we don't know shit. <laughs> I like this to is... think this podcast still exists and some, like one of our lineage from like a hundred thousand years is like, they were so stupid. They were so this, dumb. <laughs> this is dumbass. My great, great, great grandfather might've been the dumbest person ever to live. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, this is why uh, all the stories that come out where they're like, we found a way to stop aging or reverse aging, or we found a way to make you live forever. I'm like, good, because I want to see us land on the glass planet. Like, I need to be around for this. <laughs> I'm dying. So right. I'll end with this. The way I want to go out, and it's been this way since I was a little kid, is like, I don't want to get old and just forget everything. I want them to be like, hey, we want to know more about black holes. And we're sending this like, do you want to be a part of it? And it's like, I know what that means. And I'm like, yeah, like, let's do it that way. You know what I mean? Like, what if what if everybody's wrong? And it's like, I'm on a different spot of the galaxy, like the you universe. Zip through. You know what I mean? Like, what if it's what if it isn't just going to rip me apart? What if it's just a teleportation to like Mario? Worst, worst case scenario, you're the first person to become spaghettified. That's what happens when you approach. Well, black maybe holes. not. We don't know anything. Maybe <laughs> I'm not. Maybe you better not. start That's now, true. Lucas, because the closest black hole is a lot of light years so away. So this is the thing. <laughs> it, it, it really depends on like living for a stupid long time and travel getting much more efficient. But it's how I want to go. Like either like just something like that. You know, it doesn't have to be a black hole. It could also be like, we think there's water on that planet. Will you check it out? And if I don't report back, it wasn't water, you know? <laughs> hey, you'll, you'll, you'll be the real life McConaughey. 
it's just back to your (laughs) texas connection all right i think i think i get to say it this week because we veered so far away from it but that's web three baby you can cut a lot of this. You can like just bring that up by 30 minutes. Probably. I think I'm going to leave it because I'm lazy, but people can enjoy our space rants. This is cool, man. Come on. I think it's a good combo. Dude, I would like to just do a space podcast where we talk about stuff that we know nothing about. Like, because I really do love space that much. This this is how this came up. I was telling Ian about the podcast that I'm making that is somewhat along those lines. So I know a lot what? about space, actually, because my dad was a... Um... He studied aerospace in college, got a master's, and worked for JPL for a couple of years, and then quit. <laughs> nice. But uh, yeah, I, I know a lot about space. I Do read you know- a lot about space, and I like to think I know a lot about space, but I would have thought asteroids were solid. Um, so <laughs> here we are. Do you know? Uh, Do you know who Jack Parsons is? The guy who started the JPL. I do not look him up it's the most fast one of the most fascinating human beings of all time let's just say it involves black magic uh scientology l ron hubbard alistair crowley and he's this jack parsons started jpl never went to college taught himself uh about explosive and rocketry and i think he's the one who he's one of the people who coined the term rocket science like they changed the name from something else to rocket science i think it was him fascinating guy all right on that i do note, know i do know no. that margaret hamilton led the nasa software team for the landing the astronauts on the moon and she was one of the first programmers to actually like work in assembly language which you know one of my heroes kind of <laughs> is she the one they always show the picture of her with like her printed yes. out yeah yeah i, I think she Amazing. passed away recently sadly she did but... yeah it wasn't it wasn't long ago i don't remember exactly when but it's been very recent bummer i mean she was one of the the ancestors of computing so but yeah talk about making your mark on the world right like i hope i go out and do anything of that much value so (laughs) undeniable genius undeniable massive influence on like just imagine being not only that good but happening to find that job like like you are born to do that job clearly and you happen to end up in it and not only that you happen to be in the right place like you're at nasa where you get to do work that's meaningful and people see it and like she could have yeah, just been a professor could, she somewhere could have yeah. used the symbol like she could have been a programmer like doing at the time you know like they were solving such like ridiculously small problems and instead she's like nah i'm gonna i'm gonna do space stuff let's go <laughs> land on the moon well i think at the time uh women were the predominant uh yeah. users of computers and so that's why they hired her yeah, because it was just they were speeding up the secretarial work is like really exactly. what a lot of it was, which is like, if you think about it, hilarious, right? Because it's like, they thought the idea was like, oh, this week's works beneath us, we should let them use the computers. And it's like, dude, you're still using a like, you're still using your floppy to like your tiny little manual calculator. It's just funny. I've always thought that's yeah. like such a funny, like, uh, odd, uh, odd turn of events, right? It's like just such a they they got it so wrong. <laughs> I know that's the best part. Is like when people get it that wrong. Yeah, it's like we know better, but we're <laughs> gonna be totally wrong about this. All right, I can't stop talking to you guys because this is fascinating. But there, one of my favorite things I learned about in economics is like the theory of discrimination, like how you you model that, so you can actually model somebody's like you you basically put into a model. It's like somebody's like unlikelihood to hire somebody or interact with somebody. It's like how much distaste you have for something so like let's say that there's you have a choice of i'm going to go into computing or not 
and you're so misogynistic that you you see this as like this is a woman's world so even if i know this is going to be the best thing for me even if i know that this is going to be the future i'm actually going to choose not to do it that's the extreme end right so that's somebody who's like i'm aware this is the best thing for me and i'm not gonna do it because it's for women right there's so few people like that most people fall way on the other end which is like they've convinced themselves that like oh no this is actually good for everybody right this is better for women we're gonna make them more efficient and, and make more money and it's better for everybody because everybody else is doing their job gets more efficient like this is really good for everybody where it's like if you invest holistically into this thing like everybody should learn about computers that's the right choice or whatever this might not be the perfect example but it's like you could actually model this out and then what it ends up showing is you can kind of calculate like the cost of your bias and so you can sometimes estimate like how much money or maybe not exactly well you can but it's not perfect, but you can estimate how much money essentially you're costing yourself or society or something due to your like ignorance, right? So it's like the the price of ignorance and like what it costs you. And usually you're underestimating it because you miss like added efficiencies and like knock on benefits and things like that. So I just like I would love to look like, back and just be like and see I mean. how wrong the people that were like so convinced they were gonna maximize money were. It's like we have to get richer. We should yeah. be we should be terrible humans and only let the you know what I mean? Like you think about it, it's like it's take down that rainforest. Right? It's like <laughs> I wish I could go back and be like, you were 1.87 billion in current US dollars wrong. <laughs> oh, okay. That and that's one of the fascinating things to me about like environmental investing is like there's a lot of research that shows you that it's a better investment, but you'd be on the moralistic version of it to invest in environmental things, not because like the environment pays, but because it's a hedge against other types of risks. So people who care about the environment also care about like not stealing and like not lying. Like they tend to do things that are more aligned with what society expects of them. So they're less risky overall. So like the idea, like if you could actually calculate that ahead of time and show people like, yeah, you probably shouldn't pollute because here's what it's actually going to cost you 10 years on. I think that's the answer, right? If we knew all, if people bought, believed you when you showed them those numbers, I think that would be game changing. But a big part yeah. is people don't even believe you. And the unfortunate thing is, is we're uh, very short term thinkers as a species. We're bad at long term thinking, which is unfortunate. Um, Rob, I need you to teach a sociology class and I need to attend. Please. Please teach it, and okay. I will be your first student. <laughs> I, so obviously, I'm an econ professor, so I've never taught a sociology course, but I like that idea. I like teaching new stuff. I keep trying to get new courses that are kind of economics, but mostly not. <laughs> They're like, eh, "Aren't you an economist?" I'm like, "Yeah, but I want to learn about the environment." So let's. Do I want to. I want to run my environmental business idea past y'all really quickly and hear y'all laugh, but it's like very very this is going on record so somebody might steal this Lucas, do you uh, want me to stop recording stop the recording all right bye everybody you're, you're not going to get to hear this you'll have to meet lucas in person if you ever want to <laughs>